Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And a few weeks ago, a listener wrote in and asked me to do an episode about a somewhat obscure personal computer from the 1980s, at least obscure if you're from the United States, as I am. If you're from the UK, you may be more familiar with it. But after I looked into it, I realized there really wasn't quite enough information for me to do a full episode and and have something that actually feels like a full tech stuff episode, but it did inspire me to dedicate a few shows to some of the early personal computers out there that competed directly with the big names that eventually won out in the consumer market. So this episode is going to be about those machines and the stories behind them. Now, today, when you think about personal computers, you probably separate them into two big categories, Mac and Windows machines. Uh, or maybe you say Macs and PCs, but uh, I, I usually say Windows machines because honestly, I think Macs are personal computers too. PC is a term that IBM kind of coined, but we really just talk about those being computers that you would use at home, like one person at a time uses it. We use that as shorthand for the general form factor. There are, of course, other operating systems out there besides uh, Mac OS and Windows. There are lots of different Linux distributions, obviously, but I'm talking about the broad categories that the general public would identify in the market. So you don't tend to run across anything apart from uh, Mac OS and Windows for the general public. You power users out there, I'm not, I'm not including you in the general public. You're, you're elite. Okay. So just, just, just embrace your eliteness. Now, those two big names, Mac and PCs, grew out of the tumultuous early days of personal computing. The Mac is a descendant of the Apple computer line, uh, the Apple One, and then really the Apple Two, uh, and then later on, of course, the Macintosh computer. Windows machines trace their history back to DOS-based personal computers, such as the IBM PCs and their numerous clones. And in the next couple of episodes, I'll dive further into the stories behind how Apple struggled to stay relevant before it experienced a real renaissance, and how IBM came about with their personal computer and the clones that helped really define what PCs were. That'll be in the next couple of episodes. But there were many other computers that companies introduced in the late 70s and throughout the 80s, and some of them you probably heard of. A few you may have owned or have had a chance to play with, but I hope you hear about at least a couple that are new to you. So what was the first personal computer? Well, that's a matter of some debate, but you could argue somewhat convincingly that it was the Micro-N computer, which was created by Francois Guernel. It became available in 1973. They used an Intel 8008 microchip as its processor. Now, this chip was an 8-bit CPU that could address 16 kilobytes of memory. Now, this was certainly the first non-kit computer that ran off a microprocessor that anyone could buy. If you happen to have the $1,750 or so that it cost. And remember, that's $1,973. Well, there was a computer that actually preceded the Micro-N that some might put forth as a contender for the first personal computer, but it did not run off a microprocessor. It had several chips that served the purpose of a processing unit, and it debuted in 1971. However, only 50 of those were ever made, and without a microprocessor, it's hard to compare it against the computers that would follow it, so I really look at the Micro-N as maybe the first. Many of the earliest personal computers weren't sold in electronic stores or even as pre-built machines. You would order a kit. You would get all the parts and some instructions, and then you'd busy yourself in your workspace with various tools and lights to put everything together in the hopes that you got it right. The Altair 8800 was such a kit. Micro-Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems, or MITS, MITS, was the company responsible for the design and marketing of this early personal computer. MITS had made calculators in the 1970s. The Altair 8800 gave hobbyists their first real chance to own an actual computer. Up to that point, computers were big and expensive machines that mostly belonged to research organizations or universities or corporations, not individuals. 
The Altair kit came with a power supply. It came with a backplane that served as a motherboard and five cards that would plug into that backplane, including the CPU, which was an Intel 8080 microchip. And there was also a card containing RAM to the tune of 256 bytes, not kilobytes or megabytes, just just bytes. And it had a lid that covered the sides and the top of the computer with a front panel that had switches and lights on it. Those switches were input devices, and the light was the output device. As in, no display, no printer, little lights that would light up on the front to indicate the results of whatever it was you were programming. So, if you wanted to program the earliest version of the Altair 8800, you'd use the switches to code in binary. Now remember, computers read information in zeros and ones. So each switch had a position that represented zero and a second position that represented one, and you'd have to move them into whichever position to represent the value you wanted. Then hit another switch to load that set of instructions into the Altair's memory before going on to the next line of code. This was, as you could probably imagine. A somewhat laborious process. I mean, you have to remember that a single character could take an entire byte of information. That is eight bits. So just to do one character, it, it gets pretty tiresome to do this bit by bit, literally. And when you were done, the output you would get would be in the form of those lights flashing up on the panel. And later, Mitz offered kits that included paper tape readers. Allowing you to code on tape first and then feed it into the Altair 8800 rather than moving switches manually. Later still, there were kits capable of sending information to a very low-resolution screen, capable of showing 24 lines of 80 characters, all in uppercase. So it was always shouting at you. If you had the patience and the knowledge, you could program these machines to carry out certain tasks. But they fall far short of what we think of when we consider personal computers today. So rather than go through all of the early machines that relied on switches and lights for input and output, how about we skip ahead a bit and get to a form factor we tend to associate with personal computers? And by that I mean a computational device that uses a keyboard for input and a display for its primary output. Just know that there were other computers out there that did not have those luxuries that you could go out and buy or order. Usually it was a mail order that you would do. And you might get a readout from a panel of lights or a printed page from paper tape instead of having a display.、Uh, just know that those did exist. I'm not going to go through all of them because it would just sound like a weird catalog from 1976. The computers that incorporated keyboards and displays had a much wider appeal. They seemed less intimidating than their predecessors, more accessible. In other words, the early co personal computers were still very much in the world of hobbyists, as very few average consumers had much experience with computers or any idea of what they would do with one if they got one. I do have to mention one thing that Altair did end up doing. It was the launchpad for a multi-billion-dollar company, because the Altair inspired two guys named Paul Allen and Bill Gates. To write a basic compiler,、uh, to compile code for this computer for the Altair, they founded a company called Microsoft.、It、had a hyphen in the middle back in those days, and it was called that because it was micro for microcomputers. That was the class of computers these sort of things were、uh, considered, and then soft, obviously, for software. In 1976, another famous pair of people, this time Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, introduced a kit-based computer called the Apple One. The kit was pretty much a motherboard, and you had to go out and purchase a power supply and a keyboard. Not to mention, you had to build or or find a case for the thing. You just had sort of the guts of the Apple One. Otherwise, it didn't take the world by storm, but its successor, the Apple Two, definitely did. And then we were off. To the races for home computers, and in the next episode, I will definitely talk more about the Apple II and its effect on personal computers、uh, and the marketplace. That same year, at the Altair convention, engineers demonstrated the very first video display module. This was a memory-mapped alphanumeric video display for personal computers. This component is what made it possible to create interactive games and other types of software for home computers. 
Shortly after the debut of the Apple II came the TRS-80. TRS stood for Tandy Radio Shack. The Tandy Corporation started off as a leather goods company. In fact, there still is a Tandy Leather Company. But the Tandy Corporation expanded well beyond leather goods, diversifying as it grew. And one of the companies it purchased in 1963 was Radio Shack. These days, the company that was the Tandy Corporation is now the Radio Shack Corporation. Uh, This, by the way, was not completely unheard of. There was another company that started off doing something that uh, it is now is no longer known for. So that would be Nintendo that started off as a playing card company and, of course, now is known as a video game console and title company. Anyway, the Tandy Corporation introduced the TRS-80 in 1977. The keyboard housed the actual computer, and this would become a form factor common among those early computers, where rather than having a separate keyboard and, like, a CPU tower, the way desktops today typically have, the whole thing was in one big case. You had a keyboard, and it was attached physically to a uh, a case that, that contained the CPU, the memory, the motherboard, all of those components would be inside it. So you would look like just a giant clunky keyboard. Uh, the TRS-80 also came with a separate monochromatic monitor, meaning only one color on there. You know, it's just black and white. It also came with a cassette drive. The cassette drive was your data storage device. So you would put a cassette into the drive and you could save data to it or read data from it. And when I say a cassette drive, I mean very much like an audio cassette. You know, if you had an old tape player, the cassette drives for these old computers were essentially the same thing. They were just storing the information magnetically on the tape inside the cassette. And the drive would read from it as if it were uh, the same as a, a music-based cassette. Now, you may think, well, that sounds like it might be really hard to locate a specific piece of code that you've saved to that particular cassette. And you'd be right. It's doing it all sequentially, so that takes quite some time to track down a specific bit of code. But that was a a relatively inexpensive solution to figuring out how you could save media from a computer onto something that's physical. The computer's microprocessor was from a company called Zilog, Z-I-L-O-G. That company launched in 1976, and the processor was called the Z80 CPU. That's what powered the TRS-80. It was Zilog's first commercial product. It was based off the Intel 8080 processor. One of the co-founders of Zilog was Federico Fagan, who had previously worked for Intel. The company developed not only the CPU, but also an assembler-based development system for the chip. And the chip's clock speed, which is the speed that a processor can run operations at, was 1.77 megahertz. That meant it could essentially run uh, 1.77 million operations per second. That's oversimplifying, but generally speaking, that's how you can understand it. It had four kilobytes of RAM, which a, a later version of that computer would boast up to 16 kilobytes of RAM. And the operating system for the computer was BASIC, as in the actual operating system. All caps, B-A-S-I-C, BASIC. The whole thing cost $599.95, and that included the monitor. A year after Tandy debuted the home computer, it launched a disk drive for $499. At that point, the disk drive cost more than the basic computer system that uh, that you could buy without the monitor. So if you just went out and bought a computer and you didn't need a monitor, that would cost you $400. The disk drive would cost you $499. That tells you how expensive those uh, peripherals were in those early days. Tandy also offered an expansion interface for $299. It had a printer port, two tape drive connectors, up to 32 kilobytes of additional RAM, a serial port, and more. Tandy reportedly didn't have high hopes for the sales of the TRS-80. They thought, well, this is an interesting product, but we don't know if there's a market there. The company was surprised when, in the first month alone, they sold 10,000 units. Within a year or two, the company offered a slightly more advanced model. Not everything was smooth sailing for Tandy, however. In 1980, Tandy discontinued the Model 1 TRS-80. 
And it's not because of sales or because the computer was obsolete at that point. They could have technically kept selling it, except for the fact that the FCC had some words for Tandy. They had formed some new rules about computers. And the old design that Tandy had with the Model 1 violated those rules. Specifically, the Model 1 generated radio frequency emissions in excess of FCC guidelines. Meaning if you had a Model 1 and it happened to be near a radio or a TV set, it could actually cause all sorts of interference. Tandy would make several other computers, including the Model 2, the Model 3, the Model 16, and the Model 100. Later, it would introduce the Model 4. Now, the reason the numbers jump around is that the Model 16 and the Model 100 were departures from the design of the earlier TRS-80 computers, but it does show that the conceit of creating a numbering or naming system for your computers and then abandoning it dates all the way back to the earliest days of personal computers. So while I often will joke about Windows 8 jumping straight to Windows 10 and skipping Windows 9 and uh, all these other sort of like iPhone 8 going to iPhone 10, these kind of ideas, it turns out this is not a new thing. It's been around since the earliest days of personal computers. Eventually, Tandy would produce an IBM-compatible computer called the Tandy 1000. More on that in our IBM clone episode that will be coming up not too long from now. Tandy would produce more computers in that IBM-compatible line and sell them through Radio Shack stores, but eventually the company sold off its computer division to another entity, AST Computers, in the 1990s, and that was that for Tandy. Now, I've got a lot more to say about some of those early computers from various companies, but before I jump into it, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Getting back to 1977, that was the same year that the TRS-80 Model 1 came out. Another company was getting into the home computer business at that same time, and that company was Commodore. Now, Commodore had started back in the 1950s as a portable typewriter company. In the 1960s, they began to produce adding machines and later on calculators. And in the 1970s, there was an engineer named Chuck Peddle who had worked for a company Commodore had acquired who convinced the founder of Commodore, Jack Tramiel, that home computers were the next big market. And he even had a design in mind for what would become Commodore's first personal computer. That computer was called the PET 2001. According to Commodore, the letters P-E-T stood for Personal Electronic Transactor. There are those who believe that that's a bit of a fabrication and that the company came up with the name PET first and then just went back and made it an acronym later. This particular computer had a microprocessor that was designed by MOS Technologies, or most technologies if you prefer. Commodore had purchased this company, and Pedal, the guy who proposed this whole idea, had been an engineer for most technologies. So the chip's designation was the 6502 CPU. This is an incredibly important microprocessor because it was the one that powered lots of early computers, not just the Commodore machines, but in other devices like the Apple II computer. So it was a big deal. The 6502 CPU, however, was not a super powerhouse. It was a one megahertz processor. Uh, the PET computer had four kilobytes of RAM. Uh, later models would knock that up to eight kilobytes. And it also had a built-in screen. So at a casual glance, the PET looked like it was one of those big clunky keyboards I was talking about just a minute ago with a small monitor perched on top of the case. But in fact, it was all a single unit. You didn't wouldn't remove the monitor from the case. It was all molded together. It also had a built-in cassette drive for loading and reading data. And like the TRS-80, it used the basic operating system. The keyboard for the PET was small. Some would call it a chiclet type of a keyboard, so tiny little keys. Uh, it made typing on the device really challenging and uncomfortable. And this is typical of some of those early computers, especially the ones that came from companies that were making calculators. The buttons look more like calculator buttons than keyboard buttons. The PET also had four external expansion ports, allowing users to plug in peripherals, including a disk drive. 
The pet cost $795, which meant it was more expensive than the TRS-80, and technically the pet's microprocessor was a little less powerful than Tandy's computer. Commodore first showed off the pet at the 1977 Winter Consumer Electronics Show, but this was just one of the computers Commodore would introduce. Another big one was the VIC-20 computer. Known as the VIC-1001 in Japan, VIC stood for Video Interface Chip. It was the first inexpensive color computer available on the consumer market. It cost $299 when it was released in January 1981, and it also became the first home computer to sell 1 million units. Like the PET, it relied on the MOS 6502 processor, and it operated at 1 megahertz. It had 5 kilobytes of RAM, which sounds pretty weird, because you typically see RAM in units divisible by 4. And not all of that RAM was available to the user. The computer reserved 1.5 kilobytes of RAM for its routine operations, leaving you 3.5 to play with. The computer consisted of a chunky keyboard case that housed all the computer bits, and you would connect this to a Commodore 1701 monitor via a 5-pin composite video cable. The display could generate 16 different colors. In addition to the display port, the VIC-20 had ports for an Atari 2600 joystick, a ROM cartridge port in the back, and a few other ports for peripherals. Like other computers I've mentioned in this episode, you could get a cassette drive for the VIC-20. They also offered a floppy drive starting in 1982. Commodore was able to keep the price down for the VIC-20 largely because the company had its own microprocessor manufacturing division. Because it acquired that most technologies company I mentioned back in the 1970s, it didn't have to purchase components from other companies. So that helped Commodore set the price point at an extremely attractive competitive figure for those who wanted a personal computer but felt the other options of the market were too expensive. So while Apple had to go and buy their chips from Commodore, Commodore was producing their own chips, so that was how they were able to keep costs down. And we're not done with Commodore yet. Their next big product was the one that a lot of people fondly remember to this very day, and that would be the Commodore 64. It was called the 64 because it sported 64 whole kilobytes of RAM. Like the other computers Commodore released, this one relied on the MOS 6510 as its CPU, so slightly better uh, CPU than what it had been using, but still from most technologies. And this one still operated at around 1 megahertz of clock speed. The Commodore 64 had a similar form factor to the VIC-20. It looked like a chunky keyboard that you'd plug directly into a display, though this time you could actually use a color television as your monitor. The Commodore 64 would go on to become the best-selling computer model of all time, selling more than 17 million units during its life cycle. The Commodore 64's operating system was ROM basic. Like the VIC-20, it also had a joystick port, actually Technically, it had two joystick ports. It had a cartridge port and a serial peripheral port. Originally, the external media storage device was the Commodore Dataset. That's a cassette-based media transfer device, which was known to be very slow. Later, Commodore would offer a disk drive system, which was also known for being very slow, not to mention noisy. And I should mention about those cartridges. So the cartridges are ROM-based cartridges. That means that everything that's on the cartridge is permanently part of that cartridge. You can't alter it. If you have a program on that cartridge, you can't overwrite it. You can't change it. All you can do is load the program onto the computer, and then the computer's memory could save certain results, and you could even save information to an external drive like a cassette drive or a disk drive, but the cartridge will always remain the cartridge. It is physically programmed onto the circuit board of the cartridge itself. This is the same as for cartridge-based video game systems like the Atari 2600 or the Intellivision or the ColecoVision. Now, the thing about these cartridges is that they take a lot of time and effort to produce. It I mentioned this in the Naughty Dog episodes where Naughty Dog actually encountered a problem with this where they were launching one of their games, but the company that was manufacturing the cartridges had to give preference to Madden because Madden was definitely going to sell out. And Naughty Dog felt like they got burned in the process. Well, that's part of the problem with the cartridges is that it's an actual manufacturing process. You can't just do it anywhere. You have to do it in a plant where you've set it up to make cartridges. 
and you only have a limited amount of capacity. You can only pr- produce so many cartridges within X amount of time. So it definitely has its downsides. The upside is that it's pretty fast to load the information if you have designed your computer system properly. And uh, once you have a cartridge, as long as the cartridge remains undamaged and the computer remains undamaged, you're good to go. You just plug it in and you're ready to, to launch that program. Getting back to the Commodore 64, it also had a sound interface device. It was called the 6581. you got to love these different devices that are named by numbers. This three-channel component would allow uh, digital Mozarts the chance to create computer-generated music. The Commodore 64 was one of the first home computers to offer such an opportunity where you could create computer-generated music using a proper program because it had the chip in it that would allow you to play it. When the computer went on sale in 1982, it was priced at $595. Eventually, Commodore was able to drop that to about $199. By that time, the company had streamlined manufacturing, so it cost about $25 to make a Commodore 64. So 25 bucks to make one sold for 200 bucks. Not bad. Technically, Commodore was competing uh, with itself a little bit here because the VIC-20 computer hit 1 million sales a few months after the Commodore 64 launched. So you had two different computer systems on the market at the same time. Commodore would continue to introduce a few other computers in this line, but also made a move in 1984 to expand its home computing division by acquiring another company called Amiga. We'll get back to Amiga a little bit later in this episode, but here's a spoiler alert. While Commodore was the number one computer company in the early 1980s, outperforming all others, and the Amiga line became known for their advanced graphics and sound capabilities, none of that really would ultimately matter. None of it would allow the company to remain competitive against IBM compatibles and Apple. The Commodore home computer divisions were either acquired by other companies or were liquidated by the mid-1990s. Okay, now we need to jump back in our timeline a bit. We followed Commodore for a while, and I know this is a lot of hopping around, but it makes sense to trace certain families of computers while we concentrate on them, as opposed to saying, let's go back to Commodore, now let's go to Tandy, now let's go to etc. So we're going to jump back to 1978. That's when another company announced that it was going to wade into the personal computer space. And that company had just released a home video game system called the VCS Game Console, but better known as the Atari 2600. Atari introduced two computer models at the same time, the 400 and the 800. The Atari 400 was another example of a computer that had a keyboard built into the form factor. You could connect the computer to a television using an RFTV video output port and cable. There was also a monitor RGB output port if you preferred to use a computer monitor instead of a television. It had a single cartridge slot under a cover on the top of the computer. So you would flip up the top cover. It was on a little hinge, and that's where the cartridge port was. It ran on the proprietary Atari operating system, though you could buy a cartridge that would allow you to run BASIC on the computer so that you could do some programming directly onto the Atari 400. Now, the 400 was the low-end entry computer that was best suited for playing cartridge-based games. In fact, that was the primary purpose for the 400. It was more robust than the Atari 2600 video game system, and the 400 shipped originally with 8 kilobytes of memory, though later models would upgrade that to 16 kilobytes. The 400 was technically expandable because it used the same motherboard as its big brother, the 800, but you would need to open up the case to do it, and that was supposed to only be done by a licensed Atari dealer or repair service. The you yahoos out there who like to mess with your own computers, hands off, said Atari. Not that that ever stops anyone who actually has really determined to make modifications to their machine. The Atari 400 used the popular 6502 CPU, the one I mentioned before from most technologies that went into tons of different computers in those early days, and it had a processor speed of 1.79 megahertz. The keyboard was a membrane-style input device that a lot of Atari enthusiasts absolutely hated, because they said it was really hard to type on the thing. It cost $500 on launch. The 800, as you would expect, was more powerful than the 400, and it shipped with 8 kilobytes of RAM, expandable up to 48 kilobytes. 
It also had an RGB and TV video out ports. And like the 400, it ran on the Atari operating system. It had two cartridge ports under the top cover, and unlike the 400, you could even remove the top cover to get at four expansion slots inside the machine. Both the 400 and the 800 used special-purpose coprocessors for sound and graphics. That allowed the CPU to focus on other operations, and it boosted the power of both machines, making them some of the most sophisticated home computers in graphics and sound at that time. Peripherals for the 800 included optional floppy disk drives, a dot matrix printer that could print text characters 40 wide, 40 columns wide, at about 40 characters per second, so it was not the fastest. Uh, There were also additional chips that had onboard processors, and you could plug those right into the 800, which would further enhance its processing capabilities. It's kind of like giving it a temporary brain boost. One thing the Atari 800 didn't have was standard ports for peripherals made by companies not called Atari. That changed when Atari introduced the Atari 850 interface module, which included standardized serial ports and a printer port compatible with Centronics printers. Atari would also offer up a modem peripheral. To use it, you would actually lift a phone off its cradle. And I'm just going to pretend that Tari is going to understand what I'm talking about here, but she's too young to remember these. I'm talking about those wired handsets from the old days, folks. So no cordless phones or anything like that. You would lift the handset off the cradle, you would stretch it over, and you would lay the headset onto the modem itself. It had a pair of cups that the handset's receiver would slide into. So you would have the the microphone on one side and the speaker on the other side plugged into these cups, and then you would use a, a cartridge called the Telelink 1 to operate it. That's That was cutting-edge technology back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Later, Atari would introduce another modem that could plug directly into a phone line and didn't require you to take an existing phone off the hook. You could use either a cassette-based drive or a disk drive with the Atari 800. The cassette drive, while less reliable, was also less expensive, and so a lot of folks would opt for that choice. The 800 sold for $999.95 when it first hit store shelves. Atari would go on to produce more computers throughout its history before the company hit real hard times. In 1983, as I have talked about in this show before, the home video game market was collapsing in on itself. It was a terrible crash due to an oversaturation, among other things. Atari introduced computers called the 1200, the 600XL, the 1450XL, and the 1450XLD, But before 1983 was over, the company had to cancel some of those, including the 1200, due to production and design problems. In 1984, Jack Tramiel, the guy who had founded Commodore, left Commodore, or some would say was ousted from Commodore, and bought Atari. He would redirect the company to sort of abandon their higher-end systems that they were planning on releasing and concentrate more on the less expensive computer designs intended for the average consumer. Eventually, Atari transitioned from an 8-bit-based system to a 16-bit-based computer system, but those machines couldn't really compete with Apple or the IBM clones that were coming onto the market at that time. Atari did release a line of their own IBM clones, but by then it was a little too li- too little too late. It wasn't enough to save the company. If you want to learn more about that, you should go listen to the episodes that Chuck Bryant and I recorded about Atari a couple of years ago. We dove into great detail about the company and the woes that they suffered. Ultimately, Atari's shine wore off. The 400 and 800 were successful systems with decent sales, but after those early successes, the machines Atari designed began to see lower sales figures. By the 1990s, the company had become little more than just a brand name. And getting back to 1979 again, the same year of the debut of the Atari 400 and the 800 systems, was when a company called Texas Instruments introduced its first home computer, which was the TI-99-4. 
Great names, these computers. Texas Instruments had made a name for itself originally as the first producer of commercial silicon transistors. The company also made the first transistor radio in the 1950s. So by the 1970s, it was producing scientific calculators. The TI-99-4 would become one of the other big contenders in the early home PC space in the United States. So I'm going to talk all about that in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so let's talk about the original TI-99-4. And for those of you who love this computer, you're probably thinking, why are you saying it like that over and over again? Just because I want to. It was a powerful computer for its time. While other computers were relying on the most microchip from Commodore, uh, the TI-99 had its own proprietary CPU. It was called the TMS-9900, and it ran at 3 megahertz, nearly twice as fast as some of the other more powerful home computers on the market at that time. The form factor was similar to those other other early home computers I talked about, so it looked like a big clunky keyboard. This one had a cartridge port built onto the front of it where you could slide ROM cartridges into the machine to run your programs. Texas Instruments also sold a monitor that was, in fact, a 13-inch Zenith color TV that Texas Instruments had modified slightly to make it a working computer monitor. So it wasn't like an off-the-shelf Zenith TV. It was slightly changed. When the TI-99 launched, you had to buy a monitor with it because there was no way at that moment to connect it to a regular TV. Texas Instruments was working on an RF adapter, so then you would be able to connect it to a television, but the adapter had not yet received approval from the FCC for those radio frequency emissions. Like some of the other personal computers of the era, the keyboard on the TI-99 was in that tiny key chiclet style that made it kind of difficult to type on. Again, more clearly some influence from uh, the Texas Instrument calculator days that were, you know, in that keyboard. It used a Texas Instruments flavor of BASIC as its operating system, and booting the computer would allow you to run either an equation calculator, whatever program was on the ROM cartridge, or you could load right into BASIC. Programming on the TI-99 was a bit of a frustrating experience. You could program in the basic computer programming language, which was good since that was more or less the standard programming language in home computers at that time, but those programs would run much more slowly on the Texas Instruments computer compared to other computers, even with that processor I was talking about. So why is that? Well, it was because the computer also had a proprietary graphics programming language coded onto it, so every program made on the TI-99 had to be interpreted by the computer twice, which slowed things down. You could get a cassette tape external drive, but most of the computer's popular programs were just on cartridges. On the right side of the computer was a system bus, and you could uh, plug different expansion units directly into that system bus. Those expansions include some cool stuff like a speech synthesizer, a thermal printer port, a memory expansion card, and more. The expansion units were called sidecars, and they also had ports on their sides where you could attach additional sidecars. So you could attach up to six sidecars to the basic computer this way, daisy-chaining them together, except each one was a physical device, and most of them were about the width of an external disk drive. So once you got six of these attached off the side of your computer, you found yourself with an incredibly wide machine. Also, the way the sidecars worked meant that you always had to plug the speech synthesizer into the TI-99, and then you would plug the memory expansion sidecar into the speech synthesizer port on its side, and then you could add anything else on to the rest of the chain. Texas Instruments also created a special keyboard overlay system, and that would indicate what the alternate functions for certain keys were when you ran specific programs. So you could buy a game that would come with an overlay, and you'd put the overlay on top of your keyboard, and that would let you know which keys would execute specific tasks within the game that you bought. But this was true for any program. If you had a program that wanted to 
repurpose certain keys for very specific functions, the overlay would help you remember which keys were the ones mapped to those functions. The basic computer with monitor cost $1,150 in 1979, which made it one of the more expensive computers on the market. It achieved modest success, prompting Texas Instruments to revise the approach, and they discontinued the original computer by 1981 and introduced the TI-99-4A. This new version had a brand new graphics chip and an improved full-sized keyboard. It also got rid of the sidecar solution for expansion, so instead you could purchase what was called the Peripheral Expansion Box which looked like what we would think of as a CPU tower today. It looks like, you know, a big computer case. Only its purpose was to house the various expansions you could connect to this computer. The case could hold up to seven expansion cards. Well, technically it could hold eight, but one of those slots was needed for the interface card that allowed the case to communicate with the computer in the first place. The peripheral expansion case cost $1,475, which made it, Pretty darn expensive, because the computer itself, if you got it without a monitor, cost only $525. So this expansion set cost almost three times as much as the actual computer it was expanding. Now, I had one of these computers, not the expansion set, but I had the computer when I was growing up. But I only have some vague memories of it, as I was a little tyke at the time when we had the TI-99-4A. But I do remember sitting down to play a rousing game of Hunt the Wumpus. And yes, that was a real game. If you remember it, give me a shout, because uh, I love to find other people who played it. The version that was for Texas Instruments was different than the version that you could find on other platforms. On most platforms, it was a text-based game, but on the Texas Instruments computer, it was actually a graphic-based game. So uh, there you go, Hunt the Wumpus. Some real computer history right there. Texas Instruments sold about two and a half million units of this revised home computer, and ultimately, they felt that the market for home computers was far too saturated by competitors, and that it was going to be really hard to carve out a profitable space. So Texas Instruments decided that they were going to end this grand experiment. Now, I just have a few more computers to mention. I should point out there were a lot of others uh, that came out around this time, not just the ones I'm going to cover next, but honestly, to cover every single computer that came out, whether it was a one-off or the beginning of a, a small chain of computers, would take several episodes. Uh, one of the ones I do want to mention is the one that was requested at the top of this episode. The request was specifically for the Sinclair ZX80, also known as the Spectrum. It had a Z80A microprocessor with a 3.25 megahertz clock speed, and it, w it used an adapter to send video signals to a user's television. The original model had 16 kilobytes of RAM, a more advanced version shipped with 48 kilobytes of RAM. The operating system was ROM basic, and the keyboard computer was very, very small. In fact, it didn't have all the standard keys on the keyboard for this first model. You had to use function buttons to designate anything beyond the basic numbers and letters on the keyboard. The computer system could connect to a cassette drive or additional memory modules, and it was originally sold only in the UK, though it did make its way to the United States eventually. It was very compact. It was a very small computer. It cost just $200 in the United States when it first became available here. However, there were some concessions that had to be made, you know, you got a, an inexpensive computer. It was small, didn't take up a lot of space, but it also didn't have any support for color graphics. It didn't have any support for sound. And the keyboard was a membrane-style keyboard that was not easy to use, and it would wear out relatively quickly. Sinclair would follow this up with the ZX81, which in the U.S. was sold by Timex under the name Timex Sinclair 1000. Timex would go on to release a couple of other computers, mostly Sinclair clones, but would get out of the home computer business by 1984. In 2017, a recreated version of the Sinclair ZX Spectrum became available after some initial missteps happened, not due to technology, but rather over arguments about who owned the intellectual property. Once those arguments were settled, the initial run of 10,000 recreations of the classic system sold out right away. And this system looks pretty nifty. It's a kind of a black keyboard with a rainbow uh, across part of it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of fond memories of it, just like there are people who have fond memories of the Commodore 64. Uh, some people really love those old Spectrum computers. 
Now, not too long ago, I did a multiple episode series about the company Xerox. And in that series, I talked about the Xerox 820, which was the company's attempt to get into the personal computer business, although they were looking really at office computers, not home computers. Xerox's Park facility had already created a computer in 1973 that boasted many of the features consumers would find in state-of-the-art PCs a decade later, like a graphic user interface, or GUI, and a computer mouse. But Xerox had no plans to market that computer, called the Alto, to the public. They used it pretty much exclusively internally. The Xerox 820 was meant to be the next big thing in small businesses and offices. It sold for the princely sum of $2,995. This put it out of reach for most average consumers, but Xerox had high hopes that it would become the desktop machine in offices around the world and that the company would be able to lay claim to that very fertile ground. But unfortunately, the high price, the relatively slow speed of the machines at 2.5 megahertz processing speed, and the uninspired design of the hardware were all strikes against the 820. Xerox tried again with the 822, but couldn't really make a dent in what was then IBM's domain. So Xerox got out of the office computer business by 1985. Before I sign off, earlier I said I'd talk more about Amiga computers. Back in the 1970s, a guy named Jay Miner joined Atari as a developer for the 2600 game console. He also got to work designing the chipset that would find its way into the Atari 400 and 800 line of home computers. Miner left Atari in 1979 after having disagreements with the company's new management. In 1982, he joined a project that had been launched by Larry Kaplan, who was another former Atari employee, and he was also the founder of Activision. This project was meant to create a new game platform. Kaplan wouldn't stick with it. He would actually leave this project in 1982, but it found new life as it became the centerpiece for a company that was calling itself the Amiga Corporation. And... uh J. Miner would become the head engineer of the Amiga Corporation. Then we get into some soap opera level stuff going on. All right. So in 1983, you had the video game crash. Atari found itself in a bad way. The company was floundering. Meanwhile, over at Commodore, Jack Tramiel, who was, again, the founder of Commodore, was effectively ousted from his own company by the board of directors. Tramiel left Commodore, and he went on and decided to purchase Atari, because Atari was kind of reeling at that time. Atari, by the way, had loaned half a million dollars to Amiga, and Amiga was in danger of going bankrupt. Amiga had developed some technology that had promised they had shown off some demonstrations at various conferences, but they weren't getting any investors. No companies had actually stepped up to buy Amiga's technology, largely because Amiga was sort of positioning this as a gaming platform, and the collapse of the video game industry had everyone very nervous. So in order to stay afloat, Amiga took a loan from Atari. So Tramiel leaves Commodore, he goes and purchases Atari, several of his engineers and developers over at Commodore leave the company and go to join Tramiel over at Atari, and that left Commodore without a solid plan for its computer business. So you had this company, Commodore, that had previously been the most powerful home computer company in the world. In fact, only a couple of years previously, the Commodore 64 was the top-selling computer in the world, 17 million units. That's amazing. But now they just had their talent raided, effectively. They all defected. So they didn't really have a game plan for where they were going to go next. They decided that maybe what they should do is acquire Amiga. So this is a weird shuffling that you've You've got here, you've got Atari that lends Amiga $500,000. Atari starts to wobble. The founder of Commodore leaves Commodore, sweeps in, buys Atari, bringing along some top talent with him. Commodore reaches out to buy Amiga and, as part of this transaction, pays off the Atari loan. Jay Miner got to work on the first Amiga computer now that the company was safely in the embrace of Commodore, and the computer would not be ready until 1985. When it launched, it was called the Amiga 1000. 
It had a Motorola 68,000 CPU that ran at 7.14 megahertz. It shipped with 256 kilobytes of data, expandable up to 8 megabytes. It could show up to 4,096 colors. Granted, you had to set the resolution of the display to 320 by 200. It had a 32-bit multitasking graphic user interface. It had four-channel stereo sound. You could even show multiple screens at different resolutions on the same monitor at the same time. It was a killer computer if you wanted to play games. Its tech specs left other machines in the dust, specifically when gaming was considered. It was also a little expensive. The Amiga 1000 with monitor would set you back $1,790. The Amiga had no internal expansion slots, but you could plug expansions into various ports on the system bus. Commodore would release multiple computers in the Amiga line, but the problem was they weren't compatible with MS-DOS, which meant they just weren't readily adopted. IBM had already managed to really insinuate itself into that world, and people were starting to kind of solidify behind IBM and MS-DOS. So Amiga was left out from that, even though you could argue that the technical specs and the performance of the Amiga was far better than what you would get with any comparable IBM machine or IBM clone. It wasn't compatible with all the software, and customers were kind of going where the software was. So for Amiga, it just would eventually kind of fizzle out. It was sold off during the time where a Commodore was going out of business back in the mid-1990s. So what was it about Apple and IBM computers that allowed those versions to survive when all these other computers eventually faded away. Well, I'm going to cover that in the next couple of episodes. With Apple, uh, first, we're going to talk about them and how they were able to weather the storms of the uh, late 70s, early 80s home computer boom and, and how they survived to the company that they are today. And we'll also talk about IBM and the decision that IBM made that ended up costing the company quite a bit because uh, they were being very nice. And that niceness ended up costing them the home PC market. It gets pretty complicated, but it has all to do with clones. We'll talk about clones a lot in the next two episodes. So tune in to hear about that and hear about how the home PC market turned into what it is today. Uh, if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it is a specific technology, a company, a personality in tech, anything like that, let me know. Send me a message. Send it to me via email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, we've got an Instagram account you can follow. So go follow that. You can also tune in on Wednesdays and Fridays. You can actually see me record these shows live. Uh, the place to go is twitch.tv slash techstuff. Just visit there. You'll see where the schedule is, and you can you can tune in. You can be part of the chat room. You can join in with all the uh, regulars, and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 